0: Sinkar, which is, of course, Mandarin, as you all know, for Achtung Actung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk, the Second World War podcast with me, Al Murray, and my brother-in-arms, of course, James Holland. Uh, we've chosen Mandarin with good reason today, Jim, uh, as it's an often neglected but highly significant part of the story, and we wanted to get stuck into the subject of China this week, didn't we?
1: Yeah, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit hooked on it. Uh, you know, it's, it's lovely, isn't it, when you find you've got these sort of holes in your knowledge, and then suddenly you kind of, but it's like a, like the a, size of the
0: hole though. It's, I mean, a, it's, it's amazing. it is enormous.
1: It is enormous, it is, and it, and I'm really struck by just how complicated the background yep. to it is. It, it's, it's, it's yep. not an easy pitch. And people sort of talk yeah. about all these things, Boxer Rebellions and end of the Qing yeah. Dynasty. And they talk about the Marco yeah. Polo incident. And you, you kind of just think, what are all these things? Yeah. So it's been well, quite Well, let's fun. get into we'll, it we'll, we'll in get, a minute. We'll get onto that in we'll, a get
0: into it, we'll get into it in a minute. Because we, before we get cracking, we've um, been sent this extraordinary letter to We Have Waste Towers this week. And We Have Waste Towers, of course, in a frenzy of organisation for Warfest, which yes. is in a fortnight, roughly um uh, getting some ground rush off we have ways fest a little um anyway before we do here it is this is, comes from matt smith one of our independent company members mm. hi alan james on holiday last week week i picked up a copy of the nuremberg raid by martin middlebrook published in 1973 and um, martin middlebrook's um series of bomber command histories are well worth a read if you if yeah. you get the chance they're really really good i mean the, he did a treburg regenberg raid didn't he that's right there's a very a, a, a really good book about hamburg although 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 some of the sort of, some of it needs updating, but the, but the simple accounts of the raids, and particularly in particular because he interviewed lots and lots and lots of bomber command people, because it was the seventies and the eighties when he wrote these books, It's just full of personal accounts. And they were only anyway.
1: fifty two at the time.
0: Yeah, I know, I know. Anyway, it's a fascinating read, and I knew nothing about this particular raid. That uh, says Matt, but I had heard reference to it on the pod. I got near to the end of the book. I found that a previous owner had placed part of a letter between the pages. It was in um, with an envelope postmarked the 3rd of April 1944, just a couple of days after that. Yeah,
1: because it's 30th March, wasn't
0: it? Yeah. The single sheet is pages seven and eight of the original letter, and there's no signature on the excerpt. But a note on the envelope states this is an excerpt of a letter written by Pilot Officer AC Pearson DFM Observer 139 Jamaica Squadron Upwood. His pilot is noted as Flight Lieutenant G.W. Salter. The writer makes reference to the raid. It was easy as far as we were concerned, but for the heavies, it was a slaughter, a continuous sight of bright orange explosions, a diving mass of flames, and then to blow up on the ground with a flash that lit the sky. What is the best thing for me to do with this handwritten letter? Many thanks, Matt Smith.
1: Well, maybe it's the um, International it, well, Bomber Command... International
0: Bomber Command Centre yeah. in um, in, 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 in Ligature, yeah. Yeah. I'd have yeah, thought certainly. That'd the, the place to go with it.
1: At the very least, get in touch with it. I, I you know, it would be nice to uh, scan a copy and send it to Seb Cox at the Air Historical Branch.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. so.
1: Um, and also talk to our friend Peter Johnston at the um, RF Museum
0: in Hendon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, all sorts of people that could they could talk to about it. I mean, it has an extraordinary thing. Uh, Jamaica Squadron, though. Yes, yeah, so, so that's that's because it's been sponsored. Right, ah, right. Okay, you know so that that that, that, not... that sort of
1: pans for Spitfires. It's that kind of thing.
0: So that's not a not a Jamaican squadron, is what some some people might might be wondering. Um. Uh. Okay. Um. Uh. Well, that is very interesting, isn't it? Absolutely I wonder who. I wonder when he says it was far as easy as we were concerned. What were one three nine Jamaica Squadron? Why was it easy for them? Uh. Yeah. I'm not. But sure. not the heavies.
1: I don't know because they're flying mosquitoes, maybe
0: maybe that Uh, must be that that must be it they're not yeah they're mosquitoes are they yeah right they're
1: mosquitoes so they must be
0: are they pathfinders?
1: yeah so they're they're jamaican because it's a jamaican newspaper started a fund to buy bombers for britain
0: right okay
1: um so that's why but yeah they're flying mosquitoes Uh,
0: they switch from blenheims to mosquitoes yeah Yeah. that's right Yeah. yeah 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 Um, So you know, obviously, if you're in a mosquito, and they are, and they and they are pathfinders.
1: Yeah, and this is, and you know, Nuremberg is the single worst night for bomber Commander in the entire war. It's like 97 shot down, something like that. I
0: can't remember quite how many, but it's 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 a hell of a lot. It's nearly three figures. It's it's bad, isn't it? It's super bad. Yeah, and it's but it's also at the point where um, where you'd think bomber command might have their act together. It's the interesting thing, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's it's, it's part
1: of the broader battle for berlin which isn't really working and uh, yeah. and it's and it's again it's at that tipping point isn't it between you know we're doing daylight bombing because it's precision we're doing nighttime bombings because you can't do precision when actually in fact you can do it but you're very yeah. you're as vulnerable at night by this point as you are by day basically
0: well probably more vulnerable because after all you've got um You've got uh, day fighters coming online properly for the Americans by the, at, at, around about this time. Correct. Really? Big weeks around this time. And you still so got the actually, principles
1: of the defensive box of, yeah. of the flying formation, yeah. you know, of the fortresses yeah. and the liberators. Yeah. Which you can't yeah. do in a bomber stream when they're just sort of flying okay. over willy nilly.
0: No, the I guess the idea of the bomber stream is to sort of create an anonymous stream of bombers, isn't it? Yes. That, that, that that's too that you can't home in on necessarily. Yeah. Except there is still a stream, so uh, it, it, it's um. Yeah, I mean it's a te- it's a t- it's a terrible terrible night but it's interesting isn't it because this is just before um uh the switch to bombing France as well isn't it? Yes. And uh uh t- in preparation for um Overlord. So you've got this tension in what Bomber Command are able to actually pull off and they're not pulling it off at this point are they? They're, they're- no, it's it's
1: it's it's the moment where I think Harris really you know, I th- I think where his his command is that's where the big question marks come for me is is at this point. Yeah where he's sort of doggedly sticking to area bombing you know he, yeah. he's not doing um operation point blank um you know which is the american idea of crushing the um, aircraft industry he's still going for berlin he's still going for nuremberg nuremberg has got factories and stuff but the main reason for going there is because it's the site of the nuremberg rallies it's a kind of yeah. nazi base and it's got all the kind of sort of huge great uh, rally parks and all the rest of it and and you know that's just yeah yeah we've got sort of gone beyond that point at that stage it needs to be a more precise targeting I think. Yeah. And, yeah, and yeah. you know it's yeah. that sort well, of and... stubborn resistance and of course the Germans are
0: kind yeah. of you know they're picking, it, it, it's, it's not anti-aircraft guns that are really doing for bomber command it's it's knife Schrager yeah, It's music by this point music. I mean the the Germans have, have been playing catch up and have caught up basically haven't they? Yeah. Since Hamburg they've they've had a proper shakedown and put in a proper fighter defence system and it's very effective. And it gets it, it gets it, yeah, it gets very very difficult for bomber command. And bomber command is sort of losing at this point. I think you could you could argue yeah, and, and I, I think it
1: yeah, and it's and I think it's a relief for I think it's a very very good thing for bomber command that bomber command, you know, two weeks later comes directly under the command of Eisenhower rather than and yeah. his direct control, and they do the transportation yeah. plan, and that's a you know that that gives them a chance for respite. Uh, and I don't think yeah. without it, I don't think um, um, Harris would have would have followed that policy. I mean, I think he's doing it no. under sort of duress.
0: No, he's very much doing it under sufferance,
1: isn't he? Yeah, but it's interesting he's because, you know, his that. whole point, his whole belief in area bombing is because that is the way to save young men's lives. And probably yeah. by, you know, the the Nuremberg raid proves that that's not the case. You know, broadly, I'm a big fan of Harris, but I think in this this point he's slightly losing it. And and I don't think there is a problem about, about changing personnel sometimes. I think sometimes you do need a change at the top, you know, and I think, yeah. uh, you know... Yeah, you, yeah. P- you know, and a, a, a couple of years. He's already had two years in the job by then.
0: Yeah. You know, yeah, maybe has, it was time for I mean, a fresh, fresh, fresh start. Maybe he should have been sacked off at that yeah. point. Yeah. Dan Ellen, is, um, is, who talked to yeah. us about LMF, might be the person to send this to, actually. Yes. Well, that'd be interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but what, a, anyway, what an amazing thing to discover. That's just brilliant.
0: What an extraordinary thing to find um, right there. Um, right. So, we were going to talk about China, weren't we? Because um, uh, we've both been reading a bit about China and um, Rana Mitter's excellent book. And um, uh, oh, oh, there's a funny thing I wanted to talk about. I I listened to your brother's podcast. I don't know if you know if he's got a podcast. I don't know if you'd heard about that. No. Um, That he has a podcast. Does he ever mention it? Yeah. Anyway, how was your walk, by the way? We haven't talked about the walk.
1: Uh, Yeah, the walk was good. Um, uh, I mean, I didn't really talk to my brother because he was was tweeting so furiously. You couldn't really have a conversation (laughs) with him. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but, but that was fine. I mean, I had Daisy keeping but, me company. But, but yeah, no, it was but good for you. the thing,
0: that I listened to his podcast about, um, about the Western Front with Gary Sheffield. And Gary touched on this point right at the end about how the, um, the Germans, uh, German generals in particular, at the end of the First World War, then immediately get cracking and come up with basically the stab in the back myth and all that. And they say it was the politicians that lost the war for them. yes, And then that feeds, very, they, so they basically seize control of the historiography of the First World War in Germany, very, very quickly, right? And massively influenced the course of events in Germany as a result. Now, after the Second World War, you could argue the German generals seize control of the historiography of the Second World War. <laughs> yes. they do it again. Yeah. And they blame the idiot politicians who won't let them run the war properly. Otherwise, they would have won. Yeah. They do that. They say Hitler was crazy. All the rotten decisions were his. None of the bad decisions were ours. If only he'd let us do it properly, we'd have won. They say that again. Yep,
1: Durnit again. Durnit says it. Right. Um, Manstein yep. says it. Von Sanger yep. says it.
0: Yeah. I mean, basically, um, all the all the guys talking to Liddell, Liddell Hart say it, don't they? And they all right?
1: suck up to him and, and Fuller like mad.
0: Yeah. Oh yes, yep. we all base, yep. uh, base
1: our ideas on you. By the way, can you have a word with the executioner?
0: Yeah. Yeah. But it doesn't. It the second time they attempt this, it doesn't have the same like massive political effect. No. Does it? the first time they get away. But I just think it's so interesting that we see that, you, you know, this is the thing that gets talked about regarding the First World War because it's so important that, they, that the German generals, Ludendorff, the whole lot of them, take control of the historiography of the, sec- of the First World War and directly feed, in, feed that gets fed directly into German politics, particularly the stab in the back myth. Yeah. After the Second World War, they try again <laughs> and it doesn't have the same
1: massive political knock-on. It doesn't have the same political knock on, but it certainly saves a lot of necks. I mean I mean, you know, Castle Rain yeah. writes his memoirs and, and he gets out of yeah. prison early. I mean Carl yeah. Wolf, it's absolutely absurd that he gets away with it. I mean but I mean I'm not in favour yeah. of executing anybody, but, but by the by the kind of, you know, mores of the day, you know, he, he really gets away with it incredibly luckily. Yeah. Um, um von, S- just, von Sanger is just, a sort of just, you know, he is a sort of, you know, inverted commas, I suppose, good Nazi, yeah. but but well, he's never a Nazi at all, but um,
0: but it's you also, know Manstein also and Co. I mean they're all up to their necks in it. Yeah, but it's also to do with the politics immediately post-war. Is that the the Allies have much more got a lid on? They've defeated Germany and they've got a lid on yes. it. So the generals can say and do what they like, but it's not going to it's not what it's not going to do is result in some sort of resurgence in Germany um, uh, in favour of the generals, is it? Right. Which is you know kind of kind of arguably what sort of bubbles under in Germany after the First World War. It's, anyway, I was just listening to that podcast, I was just struck by the resemblance between, the between you know, the generals after one war and the generals after the other. They basically, they try the same gambit. Yeah. You know, particularly the thing of saying the politicians let us down and if only we've been allowed to fight the war, we, which is, after all, the thing that really colours the historiography about Hitler, mm. which is this idea that, that he was, you know, and I think... There's obviously a large element of truth in it is that he is making decisions um, very impulsively and he is. He does make decisions that don't really add up, but they're also they are letting him get away with it. It's not that it's not that they're all banging the table and saying, no, mind, Führer, that that's wrong. Because mainly because they no, they all say you have all mind Führer, don't they? Yeah. Well, he's buying them off and. You know, it's not just coercion, is it, as ever in the Nazi state? Well, the interesting—I think—the interesting
1: moment is—is is what would have happened if if Rommel hadn't been strafed on the 17th of July, 1944? Because there's absolutely no yeah. question that he was getting the um, um, the Waffen SS commanders as well as other, you know, Wehrmacht commanders in Normandy under. They, they were talking about we need to do a deal. You know, we need to. What, what are we going to do? What now? are we going to yeah. do? You know, we need a, we need yeah. to sign off on this one. This is absolutely hopeless. Um, uh, uh, and whether it happened or not, you know, who, whoever knows. But I, I think it was sort of not entirely unlikely. Um, I, interesting enough, I talked about the First World War. I, I had lunch with Rob Lyman today uh, and we were oh, talking yeah. about 1918 and the, and the mobile war in the last 100 days and all the rest of it yeah. and how there was sort of mobile artillery and there was obviously tanks and infantry tank yeah. armour coordination. Well, and a-
0: and, ar- armoured personnel carriers. Yeah, armoured personnel were carriers. For
1: 1919. Absolutely. Um, and also um, the idea of sort of coordination with air forces and all this sort of stuff. You know, so that very, very sort of mobile war, all of which was completely forgotten at the end of the First World War because, you know, it was a 10-year plan and it was a war to end all wars and you just forget about yeah. it and go back to colonial um, peacekeeping and all the rest of it. But yeah. but the United States does exactly the same. It sort of, you know, completely just pulls back, withdraws from um, any yeah. thought. There's no attempt either by the US or by Britain to write down any kind of doctrinal lessons or anything like that. So that when you get to the beginning of the of the Second World War, you're, you're sort of... You're not quite back to square one by any stretch of the imagination, but you're kind of... You know, the lessons of that last part of the First World War, where it is absolutely a mobile war, have not been learned at all. Um, and his point is is that, uh, and this is a sort of part of his thesis of, of the kind of sort of War of Empires, his new book, is that, you know, actually what you really want is civil armies. You don't want the regular army, because the regular army is sort of too stuck in its own kind of, you know, conservatism. And what you actually want is yeah. people who have got sort of, you know, Blank sheet and can start start again and look at these things afresh. Anyway, all very interesting. That's all a, that's all a
0: bit Dominic Cummings, though. <laughs> um, anyway, but well, well, you talk about well, you talk about War of Empires, crazy Rob, crazy Tom. Um, yeah, yeah let, let's 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 talk about War of Empires because um, uh, we've both read uh, the Rana Mitter, the really really excellent book about um, China from 37 to 45, which is really really good and uh, particularly on the complexities. Of the politics surrounding it, and yes, it, the, you know the fact that the fact that by the end of the war, China essentially has three governments. It's Chiang Kai-shek who is the sort of outward-facing guy who's dealing with the Americans. You've got Mao who's basically hunkered down, yep. playing a long game. You've Wang Jinpei, um, yeah, uh, 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 which of course the forgotten is, man, forgot completely. Forgotten man, who's the guy? Who's the Vichy Japanese collaborating? Chinese government essentially isn't he? That's what he's trying. He sort. He's, you could if you you know if we're if we're doing this in sort of in this sort of in primary colors, that's sort of the position he occupies, yeah. isn't it? And that that's really really interesting. But I think just the scale of Chinese politics, the sort of giant rivers that run through everything. Yes. The sheer, you know, and and I don't. I mean metaphorically as well as literally, as well as the Yellow River, and you know the, the when Chiang Kai Shek has to make the decision to blow the banks of the yellow river to keep the japanese out and of course they then blame they have to blame it on they blame it on the japanese obviously yep. because you would wouldn't you yep. just the scale of those decisions the sheer numbers yes. of people yeah whose lives are, are lost because of that decision and the, you know the economic disruption that's going on it, i i i have to say i was i was rather chastened reading um the Rana Mitter by... By it because I, I didn't. I really didn't know anything about it. I, you know, I know about Stillwell. Um, you know, who's Claire a Claire know
1: the the macho aviator with the girl's name. But,
0: yeah, but but who seems to do a great job, and seems to uh, seems to really hit home. But then the other thing, the other thing that um, that we read recently. Is, you know, you sent me that paper about American air involvement in China. Yeah, and which sort of ends with a kind of like. You know, obviously, the scales here are very, very different. But uh, America pulled its weight in China, and you think,
1: yeah, already.
0: Oh. There's <laughs> a couple of because th- what is it? The Americans lose a couple of thousand people in China, and the Chinese 20 million. 20 million. Yep. No one knows. Well, I, I think there's.
1: <laughs> I, I suppose what I, I, I've I've taken away is that it's such a complex story, and you and you have to you have to delve further deep into the past. And I think it's kind of worth just yeah. sort of spelling that out a little bit. You know, there's lots yeah, of yeah. chat about the kind of the, the century of humiliation for China. And you have to remember that, that China yeah. is, is really the, you know, it, it, it's the greatest empire there ever has been. It's not the largest, yeah. but but in, culturally, its reach is so ancient and it's so rich and it's so complex. And yet by the 19th century, the Qing dynasty, which is the last sort of, you know, ruling emperor dynasty, um, sort of royal dynasty dynasty, is really falling apart at the seams yeah and part of that of course is because China is so huge so it runs by by fiefdoms that you have these wall you you have the emperor and and you know he's in his walled palace you know the the the, the um the sort of hidden palace and all the rest of it yeah and, and out in and all of this vastness are these warlords who are kind of sort of kind of viceroys effectively yeah. And so it is. there is a central authority which is governing all, but but power is is regionalized, and and that worked yeah. incredibly successfully for centuries and centuries for millennia, yeah. and then yeah. suddenly you've got this sort of horrific decline, and you've got the, the arrival of the West who undermine yeah. this at a time where fortunes in China are turning, and and you know you I. I you know, I, I, have a, I have a I have a complex relationship with with Britain's um, imperial past, which is not by any stretch of the imagination all bad. But but when you look at the Opium Wars of kind of you know the eighteen late um, 1840, oh. 42, you know it's not, not good. good. It's not good.
0: It's not, not good. a good period. Uh, well, but also but also the impact of the the impact of uh, Western ideas on on China right. alone. It's, you know, it's like the, huge. The, 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 well, the Ta- the Taiping Rebellion, Revolution, whatever it is, yeah. where where this guy decides he's Jesus. That's right. And and it and it and it, I don't know, 10, 15 million die in a civil war that's that's caused by a Western idea, basically getting its boots on. Missionaries and missionaries and that idea causing a massive, a massive upheaval that that, I mean, it it really is a guy fails his civil service exams lots of times and then has a revelation that he's Christ and sets out to overturn. The status quo in China and things like that—the sheer scale of that—you're talking is about millions of
1: people in the eighteen eighteen yeah. sixties. Um, yeah. I think it's finally quashed, isn't it? In about eighteen sixty-eight, something like that. I can't yeah. remember quite when. when yeah. but, but around that but time, but, this, it's, but it's
0: huge. But, but, yeah, but in this vacuum, the British—the uh, British Empire fills its boots. In this vacuum, the Americans get established. Everyone's everyone's thinking, well, here's another frontier, here's another place. The Americans are very much involved because they're seeing it as a post-Civil War place to show what moral people they are. Yes. And and are sending in missionaries and all this sort of stuff and American ideas because the Americans are sort of rebooting how they think about themselves post-Civil War. Correct, yeah. You know, and you've got that coming in and those ideas coming in. And, you know, the, 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 the balance between empire and... And these warlord fiefdoms has been basically fakely disrupted, right? And it's also that you know the West has the West has finally lapped China technologically, which it which it hadn't done really, you know. gunpowder gum they've had for you know they've yeah. had for for for, for and ages and ages, yeah, exactly, exactly. What way back into history? And and the West have finally sort of caught up, and also come in come. With all these bristling with ideas, and it totally destabilises China, sort of well, pitches uh, it into well, disaster. Well, um, At the same moment that the Japanese are also are also hit by Western ideas and and decide that what they need to do is industrialise, um, open out and catch up. And so they regard the it you know China as their sphere of influence, China and Korea as their specific sphere of influence, don't
1: they? Yeah, well, one of the, one of the things about the Opium Wars is opium. I mean, which opium is not a, you know, as a drug, is not a kind of sort of widespread thing in China at all, but suddenly it becomes so. And Shanghai yeah. becomes this, because it's on the, the mouth of the Yangtze River and because it's this great trading port along with Hong Kong, which is also annexed by the British, suddenly you've yeah. got this this area of, of Shanghai which becomes a British enclave. It's, it's, it's exactly like the East yeah. India Company. It's the same yeah. principle of sort of getting to Calcutta and going, OK, well, we don't want yeah. to take your country. But what we want is a trade. Port where we rule the roost. And then they kind of yeah. expand. And, and the British are doing the same in, in Shanghai. And Shanghai becomes this sort of international place because suddenly the Americans come in and they settle on the north shore of, of the river yeah. and uh, of the Zuso, And suddenly you've got what becomes the Shanghai International Settlement. And by the middle of the First World War, you've got 20 different nationalities with their own yeah. little kind of trading areas within Shanghai. Yeah. Where the Chinese are just sort of pushed out, they have no control whatsoever, and it's sort of it's a bit like Tangiers. It's this kind of sort of sort of free city. It's a kind of sort of it's like an international trading hub. And if you look at photographs of Shanghai, the kind of you know the the kind of you know the 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 sort of shoreline of uh, the the Corniche of Shanghai, it just looks like any other kind of. It looks like New York or something. I mean, it's absolutely
0: extraordinary. You know, with cars
1: and you know modern Western buildings and all this kind
0: of stuff. And it's, it's very, very challenging to the, to the Chinese polity and Chinese way of life, isn't it? And, Absolutely, completely humiliating. Because, uh, and humi- totally humiliating. And also it's a sort of a vacuum of, of law as regards Chinese people. So you've got this pe- pe- peculiar sort of um, palimpsest of Western power. Right in the and right in the middle and right ideas under nose. and and, vice, ideas, and all the and all the, And greed and vice and all and, those and things. money yeah, and absolutely. and of course
1: that destabilizes the Qing Dynasty, which is also already wobbling anyway. Not least because after yeah. the this terrible civil war, so suddenly you've got that central power. You know, emperors who are kind of always pretty ineffective on one level because so much of their power is kind of sort of parcelled out around the country yep. to warlords. That central authority, which is believed in by the masses, by the millions, is undermined when you've suddenly got all these other ideas and you see, you see these other things coming in and you see your your empire being destabilised by yep. foreign powers. So, so suddenly you've got the yep. Boxer Rebellion in 1900, which is this sort of peasant uprising. That further destabilises the, the Qing dynasty. And then finally, you know, they try and sort of recover that, but they don't handle yep. it very well. And finally they're overrun... Yep. Um, in May um, 1912. And that's the end of it. You know, the six-year-old emperor, that very famous kind of um, Bernardo Bertolucci film, The Last Emperor. Yeah. You know, that's what that's all about. And then after that, you then get this sort of ten decade of very destabilised kind of power struggles at the start of the Chinese Republic, where it's not going yeah. smoothly at all. And as you say, at the same yeah. time, um, you've got... Japan after the the, the the Meiji Revolution of 1868, which is the end of the shogunate and all the rest of it, the establishment of an yeah. emperor. Ironically enough, or paradoxically, but you've got this idea of kind of no, we're going to emerge into the modern world, but it's a it's also yeah. a very. I mean, the interesting thing about it, what I what I'm so struck by, is that there is Chinese a sense of Chinese nationalism, is emerging. Um, in the late part of the 19th century and in the first decade of the, of the 20th century, and which results in the revolution that forces the abdication of the last emperor. At the yeah. same time, you've got this sort of growth in national nationalism in Japan. Chinese nationalism is about a kind of pan-Asian outlook in yeah. which we're not interested in the West. We want to dominate ourselves, but but, but each nation has its own place. Whereas yeah. Japanese nationalism is also pan-Asian but they're the top dog yeah, and they're yeah. so, massively so, racist <laughs> and, yeah, and, yeah. And, and the Chinese are inferior uh, and, and, and they're to be crushed and and you what you see is it's amazing this chipping away of Chinese territory by the Japanese so yeah. in 1874 well I'll tell you what
0: we'll take a break before we get into the chipping away okay. because we've reached our natural break point um okay uh, we'll be back in a second. Um, as you can hear, we're on a bit of a roll here with something um, I didn't know anything about until about four weeks ago. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland. So, 1874, the chipping away begins, Jim.
1: Well, you've got the Ryukyu Islands, which includes Okinawa. They go over to Japan. Yeah. You Know and the Chinese just palace to yep. do anything about it 1895 yep. Taiwan that goes the yep. Pengu Islands yep. Liaodong Peninsula that goes 1905 yep. Korea you know the Korean yep. Peninsula
0: I mean that's extra- that's extraordinary isn't it because that that I it's mean swallowed up that's like that's like the British government seizing Denmark when you yeah. when you it's you exactly know, what when it's when like when you think of it when, when you think of it in when you think of it as an imperial adventure um I suppose Cause, because, you know, Japan is arguably comp- comparable to Great Britain, isn't it? Naval power off the continent of a uh, yeah. off a continent with which it's inextricably linked. Yes, but assume like that Europe
1: is one nation.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. Although, you know, you you, you, you again you, the th- federal states of China. Yeah, the pa- parallels aren't that loose. Aren't as loose as all no, that. But you're basically, right. rather than going looking in Africa for um, uh, stuff or India or Australia or. Canada, the Chi- the Japanese are going next door. They're going, they're essentially going, going to France, as it were. Yeah, Denmark, you know, and pluck, pluck hoovering up. Now, of course, the British response to this at the at this same time is, oh well, you know, um, the 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 Japanese uh, are trying to emulate a, a Western imperial power. Best keep them on board because it keeps the Chinese in chaos, doesn't it? So that so they're very much the British are very much thinking this, those terms. And when the when the um, Russians and the Japanese go to war. In
1: 1905.
0: Yeah, it almost, and of course, the Russian Navy, of course, famously attacks trawlers on Dogger Bank because they think they're Japanese ships because the Russian Navy is that incompetent. Yeah. And, uh, you know, goes through a phase of every cape it goes around. They're expecting the Japanese to be waiting for them. Yeah. Um, As they sail from the Baltic all the way around the world to fight the Japanese because they don't have a Pacific fleet. I mean, it's that's just that story is simply. But anyway, the Japanese come out of that war extremely confident, yep, because they've beaten they've beaten a major power.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, uh, they come out of it. They come out of it with their land troops having had some modern pra- relatively modern practice, and they start to develop that military culture of, um, you know, a, 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 a warrior culture within the army. Yes, get that gets going and gets its boots on. And starts to starts to sort of prop, propagate itself, and of course, the generation of of subalterns who are fighting in that war then end up being the people running the the show um, in the interwar years, and drift and taking Japan into this sort of militaristic uh, state that that, that follows Absolutely. follows the First World War, and,
1: and they see what Britain's doing, and they see what the Dutch are doing, they yep. see what America's doing, and they go, hang on a minute. You know, this is our yeah. area. Of sphere. This is our sphere of influence. This is where we should be. Yeah. Um, and, and, and to start off with, while they're still comparatively weak in the big scheme of things, they're kind of, you know, they're, they're being friendly to Britain. They're, they're, yeah. You know, being helpful during the First World War and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh, and what really changes the Japanese is, you know, it, it's following the Treaty of Versailles, the League of Nations and all the rest of it. And they realize that, that the League of Nations is not really League of Nations. It's not it's not some big global altruistic thing. It's actually the League of White Nations, white Western nations. It's a very different thing. Yeah. And they realize that they, they completely see that there's a, 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 a grotesque level of racism, racism from the West. Um, and they're very racist towards the West in turn. And, yeah. you know, yeah. they, they, they massively against them, which is sort of rising feeling of, of isolation, but also their own superiority in that it's their turn, and and that yeah. this area, this part of the world, has nothing to do with the West, and this is, should be their sphere, and, and they're the top dogs, and, and it is their destiny to control the whole kind of sort of Asian-Pacific... Area and that that's that's how they're going to become great again and blah 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 and and China is seen as weak and enfeebled and and, and riddled with um, dissent and division yep. and all the rest of it all of which frankly is completely true so what you have is this you know in the nineteen twenties while all this while while Japan is growing and strengthening uh, and also becoming more resentful of the west. At the same time as it's growing, it's also you've got China's this sort of power struggle between the nationalists who come into power. Yeah. Um, um, you know, after well, it's it's, it's Sun Yat-sen is 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 the main man, isn't he? He he he's the kind yeah. of man behind the the 1912 revolution. He doesn't take power immediately. Then he does in 1921, but he's in his 50s then, and he dies of cancer in 1925, I think it is. And and, yeah. and by this time you've got Wang Jingwei and you've got. Chiang Kai Shek, who are both emerging, Wang Jinpei as the as the as the pol- politician within the nationalists, and yeah. and Chiang as as the militarist, yeah.
0: And, and there's a Strategist, power struggle
1: yeah. within the nationalists, really. And you've also got the emergence of the Communist Party, of which Mao Zedong is starting to emerge, although he's not the leader at this stage. Yeah. And, and of course, the problem is is that in this period of internal strife, that's not the time to sort of get rich, and it's not the time to be able to sort of show your strength to Japan so Japan goes hang on a minute let, let's sort of kick a dog while he's down and so they move then move into Manchuria which is this huge area in the north but the power base of the nationalists of chang and Wang Jinpei and and um Sun yat-sen of course is is Canton it's canton they're Cantonese yeah. you know its, it's Hong Kong yeah. it's that southern part of of China isn't it so yeah and it's a bit like southern England and northern England or, or you know the yeah. south and the north it's it's or yeah. Game of Thrones, it's that kind of massive division, yeah. you know. That that northern China is a foreign country, so for those southern nationalists, it's a bitter pill to swallow. But it's a it's a pill they can swallow nonetheless because yeah. it is the well, north. Well, so they the can't,
0: South. and they cannot do, do anything, anything about, about it. it. No. that that's. The, I mean, this is the this is the so much of so much of what happens stems stems from Chinese weakness, and uh, you know, uh, uh, and for the for, because after all. To, to go back to right where you started china's vast so you can control one bit but there's nothing you can do about the the, the other parts right. you know that 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 this is why it's been devolved essentially into fiefdoms with a with a with, with an emperor with only so much power and influence and so you know in a way all of these players kind of are, 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 are modern analogs of these local warlords in a you know yeah. the, the regional warlords actually and you know and that's how they're able to operate. So the Chi- the Japanese are able to basically have pretty good freedom of freedom of action in 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 China, don't they? And there's really nothing that Chinese can what do about it? it. And and like you say, the League of Nations do not they, they can they can go whistle. The League of Nations don't care. Uh,
1: yeah, and it doesn't care, and it has no traction whatsoever, and no. there's nothing they can do. So China is sort of trying to is trying to ally itself to the Soviet Union. There's a first Non Aggression Pact in yep. the 1920s. Then there's another one in yep. right, you know, in in the summer of
0: 1937. Well, and Stalin, but, but... Stalin, Stalin's not much interested in Mao either, is he? He's much more interested in Chiang Kai Shek. Yeah. Um. It, even though, even though you also have German officers advising, uh, uh, Chang's people, and uh. You know, yes, they're, they're Alexander von Mil- Falkenhausen. Exactly. So there's all, the, you know, all this mixture.
1: Well, what well, Chang's the... a Man in a hurry because he knows he's running out yeah, of time. Yeah. He knows that Japan yeah. is absolutely spoiling for a fight. It, it is already there's little. So, so you've got Manchuria in the north, and and there are, are part of the kind of Box Rebellion treaty allows yeah. Japanese troops to be in in and around Beijing. You know, which is just extraordinary. I mean, you know, you you can understand why people talk about the century of humiliation. Because, you know, what could be more humiliating than that? And again, the Chinese have got nothing they can do about it. So you have this sort of crazy situation where, you know, south of Beijing, you've got, around Beijing, you've got Japanese troops kind of doing exercises and stuff. Then you've got the 29th Chinese army under one of the warlords kind of, you know, across the way, across a couple of fields. And they're sort yep. of waving each other. and Occasionally they're sort of, you know, it, it's a kind of cold war, but, but with occasional sort of outbreaks of skirmishing and a, a bit of firing and someone volleying something and then it, another person doing it. And, 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 and yep. it's sort of, you know, it's obviously just completely unacceptable to Chang. At the same time, he's trying to sort out the communists and try and drive them away, and that's that's the origins of the Long March, of course, when the Chinese are kind of you yeah. know the Chinese communists under Mao and and the others are kind of sort of pushed pushed east you know westwards rather, and they're yeah. sort of great retreat. And and so, at the same time, he's trying to sort of modernise the country, trying to modernise the army because he knows that this big clash with Japan, Japan is is definitely is, coming. is coming and at the same time the japanese know that they need to strike where they can
0: well but also but the japanese are also the, the japanese are also trying to have it both ways aren't they a yeah. are, are sort of trying to exert influence without a, a major encounter but they have their own problem which is like the sort of you know um principle on steroids where you have soldiers working towards the emperor's will basically military and, it's a low level military insubordination yeah. where Officers and very very junior officers take things into their own hands and decide to decide that what the em- empire and the emperor really want is a war with proper war with China, and this is where a thing like the Marco Polo instant bridge incident comes from, which is the, the well, you know one of the famous you know uh, uh, sort yes. of flashpoint or, or lighting the blue touch paper moments of this conflict comes from, where basically the local Japanese officers get it in their head that what they need to do is. Get in a fight with the yes, Chinese? Yes. So so
1: it's worth explaining what the Marco Polo incident is. Yeah, go on. So, so it is the Marco Polo, it, it, Marco Polo went went there and saw it. So it's this, it's this big bridge southwest yeah. of Beijing. Yeah. Uh, and, and to the Chinese, it's called Lugu Chao. It's not called Marco Polo Bridge. Um, yeah. uh, and it's got 500 granite... Lion's heads carved onto it. It's in and Marco Polo says it's the most
0: magnificent bridge in the entire world that he's ever seen. Well, ever. it's like everything in China; it's gigantic and spectacular. It's gigantic and spectacular. Europe, Europe, Europe has never mustered. Right. So you know, and yeah, what uh, uh, yeah. what
1: happens is is on the seventh of July, nineteen thirty seven, the Japanese troops that are in the area are conducting maneuvers, and in the night, during the night, one of the soldiers goes missing, and the yeah. colonel of the first infantry regiment. Decides that the Chinese have abducted him and taken him prisoner.
0: Yeah. yeah. So he then files. Now, why short. does the why does that colonel do that? Because because he's got it in his head that there's a war coming and he's quite happy to get it started. Well, I think
1: because he's getting towards the end <laughs> of his career. He's, he's yeah. spent all this time in Manchuria in China. He's a yeah. long way from Tokyo. And yeah. he wants to do something to get medals on his chest and to to get yeah. glory and all the rest of it. So he then yeah. then mobilises his troops. The Chinese mobilise their troops, and there's a massive sort of you know exchange of fire, and that is the Marco Polo incident. Interestingly, the um, the ordinary soldier who goes missing turns up later, but that's all yeah. Long forgotten. Yeah, But yes, he but, just
0: turns he turns up within the day, doesn't he? Basically, but
1: who is the colonel <laughs> of the first infantry regiment? It's Mutaguchi Renya. Yeah. Who is the commander of the fifteenth army at Imphal.
0: Yeah. The well, guy who go. has
1: ambitions to conquer India. Yeah. So all those years yeah. later, you know, there he is, you know, in nineteen forty four, launching the Battle yeah. of the Admin Box, launching the attack on on Imphal to strike into up to Dimapur, cross the well, Brahmaputra.
0: He got what he wanted, didn't he? He got his big war. He got his big it's war, just...
1: but, but his army was annihilated in nineteen forty four. Yeah, it's a it war So it, it ended badly for him. But but that is the Marco Polo <laughs> incident. And then then there's kind of you know, what, what do we do? Because suddenly the situation is the, the, for for the yeah. for the Japanese, this is their sort of causes belli. Uh and, yeah. and for Chang it's this moment where he can no longer suck up the Japanese just taking their land anymore. You know, it's too humiliating. So he's got this terrible dilemma. Because what does he do? Does he declare war, go go to war with Japan, knowing that chances are he's not going to... Well, he might be able to win ultimately. But but what he's banking on, interestingly, is a long attritional war, where by bedding down, he ultimately wins. He's going to have to cede some territory, but in the long run, he's going to win. Whereas the Japanese, what the Japanese are looking for is a short, sharp war that's going to take three weeks. Just like Nazi Germany, so the comparis- yeah. comparisons are very, very similar because the insubordination is also very similar. To you know, that's exactly yeah, what yeah, Guderian yeah. is doing, for exactly. example. In, well, in but, the this, but this is,
0: but this also, you know, this is the scale of China is like the scale of Russia, isn't it? Is that you know, you can you can just you could China is gigantic. You can fall back. You can lose. You can lose a capital city. Doesn't matter. You'll move to you'll move and create another capital city. But you can't is, lose it without is,
1: fighting. That's the point. You can't just it, keep well, totally yes, going. Of course, oh, yeah. Help yourself.
0: Yeah.
1: You help yourself yeah. to Shanghai. Yeah. You just can't do that anymore. Yeah. So that's how it yeah. so he, first of all he does a deal with the communists. There's this conference following the Marco Polo incident where the, where they yeah. have this he does this deal with, with um Mao Zedong and they agree that they will ally themselves until the war is over. And then basically he yeah. goes, Right, that's it, we're gonna go to war. And then on the twenty first of July there is the deal with the, um, the the non-aggression pact with the USSR, and then on the 23rd of July um, is when, um, oh, sorry, the 23rd of August rather is when the Japanese then land their troops in Shanghai. They've already got troops in Shanghai because of the, you know, Shanghai International Settlement, um, but they then land some more, and so begins the battle of, of of Shanghai. Amphibious,
0: a big amphibious landing as well, which after all, which of course the British have got their eye on. Because they're interested in amphibious landings too, so there's, yep. a, there, there, there's all sorts of there's all sorts of entanglement here, and not enough and too much for one podcast. Yes, well, I was, was just about to time. say the same thing. I think we should so, stop so here. I, we can and come, continue. We'll stop here. We'll come. We'll come back to it. We'll come back to it. So should we come back to the Battle um, of Shanghai
1: time. and Nanking oh, after this? Brilliant,
0: next next brilliant. time round. Okay. Next time round. Um, so that's it for today. A cliffhanger. We leave you on a cliffhanger for a change. No, we've done
1: that before. <laughs> no, we
0: haven't. Um, that's it for today. Well, not deliberately. Well, no, we've done it deliberately, but not accidentally. Um, uh, uh, this, this is turning going to turn into China week. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us, for joining James and I. Uh, we're back next Tuesday. Um, until then, uh, chusy chuss. Cheerio. Bye-bye.